Hey folks, this is Nat Kendall Taylor. I'm the CEO of the Frameworks Institute, and you're listening to our podcast, Frames of Mind. When it comes to social issues, experts say one thing, the public hears another. We use social science and the science of framing to bridge that gap. You'll hear a member of our staff, or in some cases, a few very special guests chat about social science and social issues all through the lens of framing, exploring how it can shape our understanding of the world, or at the very least, how we talk about it. McMillan, would you like 30 seconds more? Allow me to introduce myself. I represent the rent that's too damn high party. People are working eight hours a day and 40 hours a week to some a third job. Women can't afford to take care of their children, feed their children breakfast, lunch, and dinner. My main job is to provide a roof over your head, food on the table, and money in your pocket. This is politics as usual. Playing a silly game. It's not going to happen. The rent too damn high movement, the people I'm here to represent can't afford to pay their rent. They're being laid off right now as I speak. They can't eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner. In 2010, Jimmy McMillan, a political activist and Vietnam War veteran, made headlines for joining the New York gubernatorial election on the platform of the rent is too damn high. In fact, it wasn't just a platform. McMillan went so far as to create a whole the rent is too damn high political party. While his delivery created endless jokes for the late night talk show host and the cast of Saturday Night Live, he wasn't wrong to sound the alarm. All over the country in major cities like Chicago, Atlanta, Austin, Oakland, and Boston, rental costs are at a record high. There are a myriad factors as to why, including developers taking advantage of tax credits like Opportunity Zones to create high-end luxury apartments. In some cases, one- and two-bedroom apartments go for $2,000 to $4,000 a month, ultimately raising the cost of everything around them, displacing long-term residents, and making city dwelling a less than viable option for many workers thus creating what advocates are calling an affordable housing crisis. But framing research tells us that leading with a crisis very rarely moves the public to take action, and housing is often understood in terms of income. Simply, you get what you can afford. What kinds of things determine whether someone has good housing or doesn't? Money. 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 It's income. Income. Wealth of income. Definitely social class. Their economic class. So how do we move the public to support just policies and quickly? I'm your host, April Callen. In this episode of Frames of Mind, how can affordable housing be elevated as a social justice issue? Researchers Drew Volmert and Kevin LeVay unpack framing research on affordable housing. And later, Drew talks with advocate Tiffany Manuel about how the field work together to advance a shared framing strategy. Um, if you could introduce yourselves first and also tell us what you do at Frameworks. Sure. I'm Drew Volmert. I'm the vice president of research here at Frameworks. Been here about six years. I am a political scientist by training, as um, is Kevin, although I will let him introduce himself. Um, so I'm a senior research fellow at Frameworks. And what that means is I do everything from conduct interviews and survey experiments um, to write reports and analyze and figure out recommendations for people based on the research. Uh, I have a PhD in political science uh, and through my graduate studies, I learned about how people form political preferences and of course, how the way that information is communicated to people affects the way that they think about politics. I have for some reason become really fascinated by housing. I as best as I can imagine, it's because coming to D.C. from Chicago and seeing just or hearing about the rapid sort of development and what that has meant for affordable housing. And then I think also traveling in the last couple of years to different cities, seeing the ways in which 
every city is starting, at least for me, like starting to look and feel the same, like mm-hmm. they're like in the sort of like hyper development, it's losing some of this distinctiveness. Um, but Drew, can you tell us a little bit about how this project came to be? Um, we are working with enterprise community partners and sort of what are some of the research questions that have come out of this work? So it's a great question. Um, this project actually has kind of an interesting history. It started out as some healthy housing research that we were actually doing. We were doing some work um, to figure out how to communicate with the American public about housing and how it affects health, um, how we can take steps to make sure that everyone has um, housing that actually promotes health and well-being. As we did that work, um, we ended up linking up with enterprise community partners and their focus was really on affordable housing. Uh, and so we, we pivoted and, and did some additional research, a lot of additional research. Um, on affordable housing, and that work really build, builds on work we'd already done with the Knight Foundation on concentrated poverty uh, and the ways in which socioeconomic mixing in neighborhoods can actually help to uh, promote a range of different kinds of outcomes, including economic mobility. So in going into the housing research, we were trying to figure out a few things. We had a sense, there's definitely a perception in the field that you know people didn't really understand housing um, as a good that needed to be uh, provided through policy, that housing is something that you get in the housing market, um, didn't really get how policy shapes the kinds of housing opportunities people have. Um, there was also definitely a sense, a big part of what enterprise does is work in community development. And I think they had a sense, rightly, as we found out in the research, that the public really doesn't have a, a good sense of what community development even is. So we went into this research trying to figure out, okay, how can we help people better understand what shapes housing, access to housing, um, housing costs, uh, and then in turn also how can we help people understand what community development looks like and why it's so important for uh, making sure that everyone actually can get good housing. So it sounds like, at least the way I'm thinking about it, that community development might be what I'm actually talking about when I say that I go to these different cities and see how sort of neighborhoods have been restructured and shaped. So can you share a little bit more? What is community development? So community development, as I understand it, is really just the idea that um, the places where people live more broadly, so not just their housing, but the neighborhood where their housing is, enables them to live a healthy, fulfilling life. So what that means then, as far as community development is concerned, is that we should be investing in creating uh, opportunities for people at a community-wide level. And also, there's there's a component to community development that the where we live, that that each of us should kind of have a pretty significant role or have some input into how the places we live look and the kinds of things that are there. So the idea that what gets built, what kinds of opportunities are created in the places where we live reflect the interests of the people who live there and also respond to their needs. So it's much broader than housing. It includes housing. It's connected to housing but it's sort of at a little bit of a bigger scale and says a little bit more about the process by which uh, places themselves and the things that are there develop. So, so I think and I think a key part of this for, from the perspective of this project was when, and we'll, I, I'm sure we'll get here, but when, when the public thinks about how those things in the neighborhood 
happen, whether there's a good grocery store, whether there's healthcare in the neighborhood, whether there's any number of other things, businesses, that, that just kind of, it happens or it doesn't happen. It's kind of automatic. Um, but of course, there are all of these people like enterprise who do actual work where they're intentionally trying to work with communities to make sure that all of the things that Kevin was just talking about happen, that those things in the neighborhood that people need actually are there, that that happens not just in the neighborhoods where there are tons of affluent people, but actually in all neighborhoods, that every neighborhood has the things that they need. So that that's really at the core of, of what they want people to understand and what ultimately we want to make sure happens. So on that front of um, sort of public thinking, how does the public think about affordable housing or community development even? Affordable housing really just means that housing that is uh, costs an amount that allows people to be able to afford other things. So your housing is not so expensive that it's taking up a huge amount of your income um, and that the amount of income that you have left over allows you to afford all the other things that people need to, to kind of, to basically live. So that you're able to pay for the doctor if you have to go, you're able to pay for groceries after having paid for housing. So, as far as how the public thinks about affordable housing, just saying affordable housing, it doesn't really make it much clearer exactly what affordable housing is. So typically, people bring all different kinds of understandings to what affordable housing is. First and foremost, they probably think of um, assisted housing or public housing right off the bat. Um, and then typically, they also bring lots of negative associations uh, with that. So they're often um, thinking of uh, people who need housing because they don't work, uh, because they're lazy. Um, this is uh, the result of basically decades of kind of uh, framing, quite frankly, framing people who need assistance from government um, as kind of lazy, not working, taking advantage of the system, uh, getting things that they don't deserve. So that is definitely still a kind of common perception, I think, that people have and bring to bear when they think about affordable housing. And you're talking about these are the cultural models that sort of came out of the research, right? Yeah, so there, there is. Um, and so, Drew, you might be able to speak to this more because the cultural models research was really more focused on the healthy housing. We didn't quite do full-scale cultural models on affordable housing, but... Yeah, no, that's right. And in the... In the healthy housing research, we did a significant amount of, of looking into how people think about affordability, how people think about um, the cost of housing, and certainly the kinds of associations that Kevin brought up around affordability are, are very much affordable housing is, is, like Kevin said, associated with public housing. There's also this kind of deep model of consumerism, which in, in, in many ways, and I hope I didn't preempt you, Kevin, but th that's, that to me is kind of the foundational concern when we're talking about affordable housing with the American public is that people model housing as a consumer good. It's the kind of thing that you get in a marketplace. And so like any consumer good, people think that it's both inevitable and also kind of fine if you can get it, if you can afford it and you don't, if you can't afford it, then you don't get it. And that's just how it is, just like any other consumer good. And so when people are, are thinking with that frame of mind, they end up sort of essentially dismissing the idea that there are specific things that we need to be doing at the policy level to make sure that everyone can actually get good housing because again they're treating it like this this thing that you know should just be treated by treated as a market good 
And so that's in some ways the deepest obstacle that we have to overcome. And as we get to thinking about the effects of the different frames that we tested on, on public thinking and whether they actually shift people's thinking or not, it largely is about whether they can shift people away from that kind of consumerist way of thinking or not. How is that sort of model of consumerism, how does that get in the way of seeing this as a social justice issue, seeing affordable housing as an issue that involves equity? Like, say more about that. The idea that housing is a commodity or should be a commodity right off the bat undercuts the idea that the government would do anything when it comes to housing, uh, let alone build and provide housing for its citizens. So if housing is a commodity, then I believe that that's something that that should be determined by the, the private market. It should be between individual buyers, me as a consumer who's looking for housing, and some private actor who's building or supplying housing. It's, it would be the same as if I'm gonna go to the store uh, and buy a t-shirt, right? It's up to me to sort of figure out what t-shirt I want and need, I go to the store and I buy it based on whatever my needs are. It's sort of a private exchange, it's a private interaction. There's no, uh, ostensibly, no public in involvement, meaning government intervention or support. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a very clear way in which the, this idea of uh, consumerism really strongly shapes both what people think housing is, but also whether and what we as a society, as a collective, the government should do when it comes to housing. Um, I think the other kind of really dangerous thing that this consumerism model does as well, which is related to what I was just saying, is that it totally ignores and neglects how it's not a market-based system in reality. In fact, the housing that we have is significantly shaped by government intervention, both in the sense of what I as an individual citizen am able to afford, but also in terms of the housing options that are actually available for me to choose from. It doesn't actually operate as a private market in reality. And so in a sense, it not only leads to certain ways of thinking about normative thinking about what government should and shouldn't do when it comes to housing, but it also seriously distorts the, the reality of how housing actually operates. So, so I want to I want to jump on this idea. It's coming back to April, your question about kind of the seeing it as a social justice issue. So I think I think that point you made, Kevin, at the end there is central. And I might even put it a little differently, which is that people don't see how policy structures the market. So whether we think of it as it is or isn't a market, there's no question that you know policy fundamentally shapes the way that the market works. And we see this actually across, across issues. We saw this in our work in the UK on the way that people think about the economy. People tend to, when they think about markets, tend to assume that those, those markets just are. They haven't been set up in particular ways. They haven't right. been structured in particular ways. And, and so, for instance, the way that zoning laws fundamentally shape the housing market. This is just something that's not on people's radar, as well as you know, the kinds of advantages that people get kind of subsidies from the government mm -hmm. um, through the mortgage interest deduction, for instance, that actually make it possible for people to afford certain things within that market, which is which is a slightly different issue. Uh, but, but those things just aren't on people's radar. I think that ties into consumerism for all the reasons Kevin was just saying, but it also gets at this kind of, in some ways is this even bigger issue, which is that people don't see the way that policy 
structures, right. housing and, and residents generally. And so this is going back to the work that we did on concentrated poverty for the Knight Foundation. People don't recognize when people are thinking in this way. And there are some other ways uh, that people have available to them where they start to see these things, but generally people struggle to understand the ways in which racial and economic segregation are the direct result of policy decisions that have not just you know happened in the past, but are ongoing. And so that's kind of related to, but a little distinct from that consumerism model. And, and at base that people have a hard time recognizing that it's a social justice issue because they don't see, see upstream that policy is fundamentally shaping those kinds of outcomes and, and people's access to housing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that, that can, connects to the, or yeah, I, I kind of see a connection between the consumerism model and the sorts of dynamics Drew is talking about when it comes to racial and economic segregation in the sense that people have an easier time and are, and I think our research suggests are likely to kind of see those patterns as a result of preference, um, which is kind of consistent with the idea that housing is a market. You know, I, where I live is based on what I prefer as a, a consumer in the housing market. I've, I've made the choice to live in this neighborhood. Uh, it was a personal decision. Meanwhile, it obscures, but then also prevents people from actually seeing or being able to support larger scale policy actions that have both created these conditions and, you know, we could in fact change through efforts like that. I want to jump ahead um, on my list of questions that what you all are touching on. So my colleagues know that last year, maybe two years ago, I was obsessed with um, Richard Rothstein's book, Color of Law, where he talks about the history of racist, um, essentially racist housing policies that have affected how neighborhoods have been shaped. And so in this work, you know, like we've looked at history, how would you sort of bring history into the mix when you're communicating about this issue? Like I know redlining, of course, is like an example that people yeah. often sort of like go to, but we know that like as it matters, as it relates to policies, that there is a long history that advocates should be mindful of that they're working on top of with these new policies. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the big findings in this work and also, as I mentioned in that work that we did on, on socioeconomic mixing, which is essentially about concentrated poverty and racial and economic segregation, is essentially that stepping back and explaining that history, stepping back and explaining all of those different ways in which policy has historically and continues to lead to racial and economic segregation is actually incredibly powerful and helps people recognize in a way that just asserting, just saying racial economic segregation happens because of these policy decisions that we've made, actually explaining, giving some examples of that, spelling out the links for people between those policies and the kinds of patterns of residence that we see in the world, that is actually really helpful in helping people understand at a deeper level, not only why those things exist, but also the, the fact that we should be doing something to address them that in turn, because once people kind of recognize the, the origin of those patterns of segregation, they recognize in turn, okay, wait, I guess we, we have a collective responsibility to actually do something about that. It's not as Kevin was saying, it's not just that people chose to live where they, where they wanted to live. And so, you know, it's not a problem, right? So, so I think we found that in, in past work and then found something very similar in the work on housing about the value of, of explaining the relationship between policy and disparities and in, in outcomes. Kevin, I don't know if you want to touch on the, on that, but. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that um, taking or sort of using history 
and communicating about history um, on this issue does a couple of things. I think first and foremost, it does some of the stuff that Drew was talking about in terms of disrupting people's sense that it is working like a market. The, the role that history and historical explanation can play is to sort of disrupt that idea that, well, no, that's not exactly what happened or how it happened and, and how it is currently happening. So I think it's, it's effective in the sense that, that it, it disrupts this idea of consumerism. I think it's also uh, helpful and effective, too, in the sense that, you know, the history of housing in, in, in this country also raises very deep questions about equality and fairness in American society. And so, you know, in both, I think, the work on socioeconomic mixing and our work on affordable housing, we, you know, we found that tapping into people's sense of, of fairness and what's right and the idea that things should be equal, regardless of, of who you are, is able to be tapped into quite effectively when you talk about the history of housing in the U.S. and sort of explain what we're seeing as linked to and rooted in a, an ongoing history of, of policies and practices, both by the government and the private sector, really clearly illustrates for people why and how what's going on with housing is, I get, you know, really, it, it's not just a, a sort of empirical thing and, and problem and practical, pragmatic thing that we need to fix, but it's also a kind of a moral question. It's about whether we as a society are kind of operating in a way that's consistent with our, our uh, ideals of, of fairness and, and equality, really. So you're saying that we have not given up on history just yet. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Oh, just, I think given, with who like, hasn't given up on history? As political scientists, like the current conversations around we're ahistorical as a nation and sort of our revisionist history, or if you think about like the New York Times new 1619 project, where there's a lot of pushback around like what is historical fact um, or fiction based on political gain. But it sounds like in the research that bringing up history in this case is actually moving people to better understand these issues. I mean, I think it can move people. And I, you know, regardless of whether it's claims about history or claims about contemporary society, the nature of politics is is what it is. I mean, anybody can sort of debate the claims that someone's going to put out there. And that said, you know, I think that certainly the the sort of historical explanations that we've explored and with respect to this particular issue, we found that it can move people's thinking in productive directions. Another sort of important and interesting consideration is thinking about what function is providing historical explanation serving for different groups, right? So like, particularly if you think about the, the groups who've been most impacted by the, the policies and practices that, that we've had around housing in this country, um, it's quite important and can be quite powerful to, to provide a historical frame for the, circum, the contemporary circumstances that groups are facing to sort of build a sense of solidarity and an idea that there is this shared history that 
that binds people together in a way that can really, I, I, I think, or would argue, you know, history can also serve as an effective mobilizer. So I, yeah, I think that it still does, does matter. That's not to say that people don't think ahistorically, but that the, the fact that that might be suggests that using historical information or offering historical explanation is all that much more important. Yeah, I think that's just right. I mean, in some ways, it's precisely because we tend to be so ahistorical that people fall back on their default assumptions that, well, why why must things be like they are? Well, it must be because of whatever choices particular right. individuals made or because we're not seeing that kind of broader context. And so stepping back and actually explaining the historical roots of things. That, and, and in some ways, it's, you know, history. It's not just any history, right? So it's not you know, let me tell you the story about this one person who back in the 60s experienced a particular challenge, right? It's, it's explaining a policy in a historical context. Um, and we find that similarly policy explanations in a contemporary context are really valuable and important, helping people understand the links between particular policy choices that the, the country has made and particular outcomes in the world. It, the historical perspective I think is particularly important when we're talking about race because it, uh, I mean, without that, it's impossible for, impossible for people to really, to really at, at base understand the, the current trend. So, I mean, there, there as uh, plenty of places, but there, I think that kind of historical explanation is especially powerful. But it is important to flag that when we're talking about history, it really is, it's, it's a kind of a systemic explanation. It's not um, like looking back to history for particular stories. And I think for me, like in the housing work, something that became really clear is like, you know, as we're teaching advocates and we also get this understanding of how the public thinks about issues that are connected to race and to class is that sort of model of like a culture of poverty and what the housing work and looking at the history of it has helped me to, I think, better explain to advocates is oftentimes this idea that we have is like a byproduct or an effective culture is really a byproduct of really bad policy. So again, thinking about the policies around housing um, and zoning and how neighborhoods have come to be, that the assumptions that people have around race that, you know, we were talking about inner city, quote unquote, or the way that poor people live or where that intersects with race and the way that black people supposedly live really is about just a history of really bad policies and the culmination of them have resulted in some really devastating effects. But how that's sort of assumed to be just how certain groups of people live, but it's really just policies that have made that so. Yeah, I mean, I think another kind of important component to that, too, is kind of to think about the other side of the coin. So not just and maybe this gets to the, the questions about the sort of messages that we tested, but it's not simply that there's been a huge amount of uh, disinvestment and unequal and unfair treatment towards certain groups, but also that, you know, we have invested in housing, and we have different policies that have really benefited and advantaged people as well. So it's not simply this one-sided dynamic where policies or housing policies are just responsible for creating disadvantages for some groups, but they've also very much created advantages for, for people as well. And that is a side of the story, I think, that often really doesn't get told as much. And the the kind of consequence of that is that the housing housing issues become uh, a quote unquote problem of 
like you as you were describing inner city communities when we think about housing issues or what housing problems are people will go right to certain communities rather than others when you know some might argue that well part of the problem is is also that well some people are really kind of i don't know how to describe this in uh like um more savory terms but the people are hoarding resources and some some people have put it in that terms this idea of opportunity hoarders you know like it's also a problem of the fact that some people are just getting way more than other people and it's unrestricted and um that's also unfair too so that's i think in kind of other side of the story that that doesn't get told um and that exacerbates this tendency for people to associate housing issues and housing quote unquote problems with certain communities so to speak and that sort of opportunity hoarding also comes up in education when they'll see the way that school districts are funded by property taxes and what that means for like these communities that already have sort of disparities embedded in them again by these different policies so so one thing i want to go back to and Kevin, maybe I can say a little bit about this, but I'd love this was this was all you and figuring this out. And I thought it was actually it's in some ways the simplest recommendation, but I think arguably the most powerful is the the sort of the affordability frame itself and the, the word affordability and what it cues for people and the benefit of shifting from talking about housing affordability to talking about housing costs. And, and what we found there is as soon as you talk about affordability, you're cueing all of this kind of consumerist thinking, this idea that it's about what people can afford or can't afford based on how much money they have. And then the issue is maybe at best, let's raise the minimum wage so we can make sure people have enough money in their pockets that they can afford housing. But it's not really, it doesn't make it about the housing themselves when you frame housing in terms of affordability. But when you frame it in terms of cost, you suddenly get something that people can understand is, is, is kind of tractable, the kind of thing that you can actually address as a housing issue and through housing policy. So uh, I don't know if I've captured that right, Kevin, you might want to, this, this, again, this was kind of came out of your insights um, in looking at these different kinds of research that we had. So, but, but I found that to be one of the most interesting and important findings from the whole project. Yeah, I think this was, um, this was something, this is a good example of how multiple sources of data can really be useful because you might be able to find something in a discussion setting more than uh, a survey, uh, online survey experiment where you're kind of predefining everything for people at the outset. So yeah, basically what Drew is talking about is the, it's a really subtle, uh, subtle shift, but I guess that's what framing is really all about. But Basically, what we found is that talking about the issue in terms of whether people people can afford housing or how much people are spending on housing and kind of identifying that as the problem isn't necessarily the most effective way of kind of defining the problem of affordability. And as Drew was saying, in some ways, it's, it's making the problem affordability, if that's kind of how you understand and define that concept. Instead, we found it was more effective to actually make the, make the problem about housing itself. What is wrong with housing? Is the issue that people can't afford housing um, or that they're having to spend too much on their housing? Or is it in fact that housing itself is unaffordable to people? It's too unaffordable. There's not enough housing. It's too expensive. It's not getting 
built or designed in the way that it needs to. So it seems kind of simple and subtle and maybe even obvious, but it really can lead to different ways of thinking. So I think one of the issues with talking about it only in terms of you know, how much people can afford or how much they're spending on housing leads people to all different kinds of places. It doesn't necessarily get them away from structural things, but it really allows people to insert really any kind of explanation. Because if you sit back and think, okay, we have this problem, people are spending too much of their money on housing. You could come up with tons of explanations for why that might be the case. It could be, it could be because people are just mismanaging their money. It could be because student loans are too high. It could be because healthcare is a mess, you know, which the last two are obviously intersect with housing and are really important issues. But what you'll see is that it doesn't necessarily get people to housing policy and housing itself, that we would actually need to do something about policies that are targeting housing specifically um, and that are targeting people's ability to afford housing itself. It gets people to all different kinds of places that if you were to actually define and make the problem about housing itself, really gets people to fill in more structural explanations and solutions that are centered, are actually centered on housing. So I'm going back to the sort of values piece. And I think about fairness, we mentioned equality. I think another thing that comes up is opportunity that everyone deserves the opportunity to X, Y, and Z, to go to a good school, to live in a nice neighborhood, healthy foods. Um, But for the research that you all have done, opportunity was something sort of complicated. Can you tell us a little more about that? Complicated is the right word to use. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But again, I think, you know, to the public's credit or in their defense, I should say that like the idea of affordable housing, Opportunity is is a concept. It's a slippery thing. It, it is complex. So it's not surprising that people might have lots of ways of thinking about it. Um, and some of those might not actually be productive ways of thinking about it. So I think what we found, again, really comes back to this consumerist way of thinking about housing. So the idea being that housing does and and maybe to a lot of people should operate as a market. So housing is a commodity. It's not something that people necessarily um, readily recognize as something to which everyone should be entitled to have. You know, the idea of housing as a human right. It's a very common frame. I can't I, I don't necessarily disagree with that principle, but a lot of people might, right? And so I think when people hear the opportunity to housing, what they often hear and end up rejecting the idea because of it, is they do understand it in many cases to mean that you're just giving people housing and they have done nothing to earn it. And that cuts up again, that actually cuts up against or, or uh, sort of undercuts um, people's conventional understanding of of fairness, right? So in the US, there's a long history, right, of the idea of fairness is sort of revolving around deservingness, that you do something to get what you have. And so when we looked at the idea of opportunity, just the word itself, first, people have a difficult time understanding, well, what does that actually mean to have an opportunity to housing? Are you saying that 
people should just be given housing? Or what are you saying exactly? Um, it's too vague. It's too confusing. Yeah. So I, opportunity is slippery and tough. And I think I think that the tricky thing is it's not that not that opportunity isn't an effective part of a message. It's that it doesn't work as the frame itself because it leaves too much open for people to fill in with other stuff. So I think people can can go one of two ways if they're just talk. If if you just say everyone needs to have an opportunity to have housing, that's good quality affordable housing. That's why we need to do X Y Z kinds of policy things. If you say that, people can go one of two directions. Either think you're saying, as Kevin was was just suggesting, like we should just give everyone housing and it's like, that's what you mean, or actually go the other way and think, sure, everyone should have an opportunity to have housing. But at the end of the day, as long as you, you know, have a free market and open market, everyone can go, you know, if you can afford it, you can go get the housing you you can afford. And that's that's how, that's all that means, right? So they can kind of interpret opportunity either up to the point where they reject it or down to the point where it doesn't really shift they're thinking in any way or get them to support any kind of policy change. But we did find, so it's not, again, it's not that you can't talk about opportunity, but you have to situate that within some sort of, frankly, more structural frame that is explicit about the idea of opportunity distribution and the, the way that opportunity is structured. So if you talk about fairness across places, you're talking about the ways in which opportunities to get good quality, affordable housing are distributed differently in different communities. Um, across different communities, if you if you explain the ways in which existing policy actually advantages some and disadvantages others, and you're talking about the ways in which, again, those policies are structuring the kinds of opportunities people have to get good housing. And, and so you're talking about opportunity, but you're doing it within a frame that helps people recognize the nature of the current problem and in turn, the kinds of solutions that are actually needed to address it. And if you just say, we all should have an opportunity, people just fill in the blanks with their existing ways of thinking or kind of fumble for, ah, I'm not really sure what you're getting at. It's either super reasonable, but doesn't move me, or it seems unreasonable and people reject it. So you have to give, in some ways, orient people with that more structural um, explanation, the more structural frame up front for people to be able to process opportunity in a way that that's really productive. Yeah, Drew did a much, much, <laughs> much better job with that one than I did. But to, to sort of add like a little bit of follow up too, I think it's also that, and this might get to the second part of what Drew was saying, I think it's also that people understand opportunity in kind of negative terms, so, and reactionary terms. So they hear the opportunity to housing, and they understand that to mean that Yes, there should be no barriers for people to, to get to housing, but it doesn't necessarily get them to the idea that you would proactively promote or support housing. And so what that means then is that it's still ultimately up to you as an individual to show that there was something that prevented you concretely, whether it's due to your race or economic situation or something else, as to why you weren't able to get housing in order to, to get that quote unquote opportunity. You have to show that the opportunity to, to housing was denied to you. And that ultimately kind of, again, is a really, it's a little bit of a retroactive way of understand, retroactive and passive way of understanding housing issues and how to address something like inequality that hopefully um, you can get people away from, by like Drew said, talking more about the opportunity structure itself 
and not just the sort of general idea that people should have an opportunity. So sort of like our 20th anniversary theme, explanation is key. Right. <laughs> it is. Structural. It's important. I would say structural explanation. Structural explanation is key. <laughs> we will start selling those t-shirts on our East store. Ooh. Just I want one. <laughs> Do not actually have an Easter, but maybe we should get into the tote bag game. All right. So last question. Um, thinking about the potential impact of this work, um, what are your what do you hope comes out of this? Like we know housing is my personal favorite topic and myself aside, it's a big issue that we know is happening right now in politics. And this is throughout the country. We are based in D.C., and know what sort of affordable housing looks like or is not looking like right now. So what do you hope comes out of this work? Can I put that back on you? I mean, since this is one of your, like one of your favorite, one of the issues that you are most committed to and interested yeah. in. I mean, what, what, in your mind, what would you hope comes out of this? I would just, I mean, this, I don't mean for it to sound like a Miss America pageant response, but for me, like I really want people to be able to live wherever they desire to live. And I think, to not have so much of their resources, whether actually if they even have the resources to go towards housing, like it does not make sense to me for rent to be in some cases four or $5,000. And I think about the beauty of cities that where it is where you find so much diversity um, across a number of areas that we're losing a lot of that. We're losing a lot of culture. We're losing a lot of distinctiveness because people simply can no longer afford to live here. And I think especially as it relates to race that major cities have been where communities of color and immigrant communities have found a home. And now that that's sort of flipped because of housing costs, um, I'm worried about sort of the long term impact and implications. We just opened a Pandora's box. Like I think about the effects that it might potentially have on democracy when we think about the ways that we engage with one another. Like we're losing a lot of that because people just simply can't afford to live anymore yeah it's hard it's hard to, it's hard I, I, I was I, supposed to tell you what no, i hope <laughs> like I, I hope that it changes I hope for that those things too and i and i would hope that the i mean framing is a bridge there, there there's no magic you know framing is not going to magically get us there but but i it does feel like i would hope that that some of the work that we've done can contribute in a in a small way toward helping to move the discourse in a more structural direction because i think at the end of the day I mean, that's kind of the underlying thing that we've been talking about throughout the this conversation, at the end of the day, really helping bring into view big structural factors that shape housing for everyone is the thing that's necessary to put some of those big policy solutions that are capable of bringing about some of the kinds of outcomes that you're getting at April on the table. And I think without that, without the discourse shifting in that way, it's hard to see a path towards something that's ambitious enough. So um, I would hope that I would hope we, we can be a small part of moving things in that direction. Yeah, I get, I would echo everything that that both of you said. I mean, I hope that it it kind of mobilizes people. Um, housing is is such a it's 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 a person. It's obviously a collective issue. We want people to think about housing in collective terms, but it's so personal and so deeply felt, and and it's so universal that I really hope that you know, work like this would help to mobilize people around housing issues to kind of see how their personal experiences with housing are connected to other people, um, that they are connected to other people, and that kind of serves as a grounds for, for becoming politically active around this and other issues. 
I, and then ultimately, of course, I mean, the end game is to make sure that everybody can have housing and able to kind of live a, a healthy life where they, where you have what you need and you can, um, feel like a, a part of society and yeah, participate. Awesome. Thank you both so much. It was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you, April. Yeah. Thanks, April. Thanks, Kevin. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Drew Vollmer, and I'm the Vice President of Research here at the Frameworks Institute. I am very pleased to be joined on the podcast today um, by Tiffany Manuel, who is herself a former frameworker, um, was actually the first director of research here at the Frameworks Institute, and then director of impact and evaluation here, went on to Enterprise Community Partners, where she was uh, the Vice President of Knowledge, Impact, and Strategy, and is now um, off doing Something else has created her own her own place, uh, Case Made. Is that right, Tiffany? That's right. And thank you so much, Drew and Framers, for the invitation to join you on your podcast. Well, we are very, very happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Good. Tiffany, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, about your experience and specifically this, this new role you're in? Yeah. So um, after many years of working in enterprise community partners, I would say, and actually, I should step back. When I was in enterprise, one of the things that we were working on um, that we knew we needed to do was to sort of change the conversation that was happening. We started to see across the country, lots of the folks who normally wouldn't be in this conversation about affordable housing actually start to be in this conversation, mostly because a lot of folks are now very challenged by the issue of finding affordable housing and so are now embracing it as an issue that concerns them. So we started to see the potential for a groundswell movement around this issue, but the narrative just quite, wasn't quite right. And with my experience at Frameworks, one thing I knew exactly who to call, I called Frameworks to say, we really need to at least understand why the current conversations that we're having are just not working well, the backfiring in all kinds of ways at the very moment when we should be having something bigger and broader to say. Um, really um, encouraging, I would say, the groundswell of support that we needed. So uh, did the research um, with Frameworks and and really just got pulled back into this broader work around the country, not just around the framing, but around this whole issue of how we actually make the case for the solutions that we think are important around affordable housing. There are many, and they're very complicated. And lots of our folks around the country were not just struggling with the kind of overarching framing, but how do you actually talk about the solutions that we propose when they're very, very difficult and complicated? Um, so what I do with the case made is I work with folks around the country, mostly in the housing space, a little bit in the climate space, a little bit in the social determinants of health, around the solutions that they propose and how they actually make a case for that. So a little bit of framing and a whole lot of other stuff. To <laughs> so that's fantastic. And, and I, it, we're going to get to those complicated solutions in a bit. This, this conversation is a great chance for our listeners to who maybe aren't experts on affordable housing and community development to dig in a little bit and understand a little more about the issue as well as uh, how to frame it and, and how you specifically, when you're actually working with the field, how you help people understand how to, how to make that case. So maybe we can step back first and I could just ask, when we talk about affordable housing, what do people in the field mean by that? What, what is affordable housing? Yeah, and I think that's probably at the, <laughs> at the crux of the challenge, I think, because when people think about what is affordable housing and who needs it, you know, for many years, most folks didn't see themselves in the circle of in, in the circle of belonging. Let's just say around the issue of affordable housing, it was always for those people mm -hmm. over there in that neighborhood or in that community. Versus, this is about me. 
And I think the reframing challenge is in part about how we reframe the conversation so people see themselves as part of it, that, that we all need affordable housing and that what it is is an opportunity for us to reconnect. Lots of folks who are outside of, I think, just the basic things, right, that give you opportunity in this country. So having said that, when affordable housers talk about affordable housing, they're thinking that for the most part, there's a kind of standard definition that it usually means anybody who earns, or for folks who are earning zero to up to 80% of area median income, so their incomes are low enough, right, um, but they're not likely to be able to afford the housing stock in that neighborhood, then they qualify technically for a lot of the state, fed, the, the local, state, and federal programs that are about affordable housing. But that's tricky because a lot of the programs will go up to like say 120% of area median income, some will go up to 100%. So there, so in any given place, there are different conversations about what actually constitutes affordable housing. And then it gets even trickier. There are folks who talk about attainable housing, which is the sort of missing middle, where there are lots of middle class folks, right, who actually do earn a decent living in terms of, you know, what they are, their take-home pay is, but they still don't earn enough to be able to afford even an apartment in lots of the markets across the country. And so, and so again, it gets very complicated very quickly. And the challenge for our field is that we are having a very difficult time expressing that in the way that we understand it for our programs and services. So you just tap the, <laughs> the most basic question you, you asked, right, is about what is it, is already gotten us into a lot of complexity <laughs> that is hard to communicate. So, so these issues around affordability or attainability, are these new? How long have they been with us? And I guess a kind of related question, the kind of the, the language of affordable housing. I mean, is, is this kind of a new way of talking about things? How long has it been around? Well, so yeah, I think housing as an issue has always been something that has been sort of a part of the language of entitlements. Like, what are people entitled to? Do we believe that people should be, are entitled to have a decent place to live? And who's responsible for making sure that happens? That's always been an issue. I think historically, you know, housing was the last of the civil rights, I think, sort of major civil pieces of civil rights legislation passed in the 1960s. And that was by no accident. Like in 64, you got the Civil Rights Act, which gave you access to public areas of accommodation and kind of basic, you know, rights in terms of employment and those kind of things. But the housing piece was actually stripped out of that legislation and didn't pass until 68. And it was only because, I would say, or partially because of the death, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and Linda B. Johnson really used that as an opportunity to force Congress to pass like fair housing legislation that really was about who has access to this thing called housing. Mm -hmm. So it's always been an issue that has been highly contentious, probably more contentious than a lot of the other social issues that we tend to talk about as entitlements or things that we talk about in terms of social and social issues. I think what's driving the conversation today is just how out of balance our housing markets across the country have gotten. It's one thing to say that folks at the lower end of the income spectrum are going to be struggling and they may not have access to the housing that they desire or need. It's another thing when you look at just the sheer number of people and the growing numbers of people who cannot afford housing, either because their wages, our wages just historically have not kept up with the cost of housing or because other systems have just imploded <laughs> and we haven't figured out how to create those adaptive bridges to change and reform those systems that would help to connect folks to opportunity and connect them to a decent place to live. So this has always been with us, but just the way in which it's gotten so out of balance, right? It's just become the issue of the, uh, of the current conversation. Yeah. Is it, is it way more out of balance now than it used to be? 
Absolutely. If you look at, if I were able to show you a graph and sometimes in some of the materials I use, I, if I could show you just the numbers of folks who are spending more of their income, right, than, than, uh, than the recommended sort of 30% of your area mean income, which is the recommended guideline, you can see that steadily growing over the last 30 or 40 years uh, consistently, right, rising dramatically. And so even though you've got lots of folks in the housing space and the community development space who've been working to bring more affordable homes online, as fast as we can put those houses up and we can make those available, um, we've got more folks falling into the situation where they just can't afford where they live. And again, there's a whole range of things that are happening. Wages are, 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 are not enough, but also we haven't been building enough to keep up with the market demand, especially at the lower levels of income but that people can afford. So, so we have got to, we need a real adaptive solution here to figure out how to adapt our mar the marketplace, whether that's the housing market or whatever that is, to the realities that exist. Otherwise, we're in big trouble. And that's the thing that I think affordable houses are trying to sound the alarm on very loudly and struggling to do. So you, you kicked this off by flagging that those kinds of solutions, the things that are necessary to actually fix that, are complicated. So can you walk us through some of those some of those key solutions? What are some of those things? Um, what, the, the simple ones or maybe a, a lot of complicated ones? Yeah, so I think I think I would categorize them in sort of three buckets. I've been working a lot with the folks in the Bay Area and I'm, I'm gonna take their sort of three buckets because I think they kind of give an easy way to think about it. You know, part of it is that we just have to produce more affordable housing. In most markets, the housing that's getting produced is the uh, sort of upscale stuff. We're not producing as much of stuff for folks who make an average everyday living and that's because you need some subsidy to do it. It just the margins aren't high enough for developers to make this right, make what they could versus, you know, versus uh, doing the high income stuff. So producing more affordable housing is the first thing. The second one is the sort of preservation of what actually already exists. So there's a lot of what we might call naturally occurring affordable housing that just is naturally affordable or just a, right, already affordable by statute because that you're right, they've been, they came in through the low income tax housing tax credit or some other tax credit program. So they are, they are mandated to be affordable at a certain level of income. But if we don't preserve that, right, we, then we lose that over time. And so there are a whole series of policies that are around this issue of preservation. And the third area is protection. So what are the power protecting folks who, and when I say protection, protecting them from uh, unfair evictions or uh, protecting folks from discrimination or just policies, whether formal or informal, that have the impact of keeping whole folks outside of what we might say is housing, you know, adequate housing. So when I think about the sort of simple way to think about it is, you know, pr produce, preserve, protect. Mm -hmm. I think when you get underneath those three categories, boy, does it get complicated really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think part of the issue for us is that housing is actually one of those things that's jointly produced. It's always a sort of public private sort of partnership. And those partnerships are very, just, just very complicated in terms of how they're interwoven. So, so what, I know there, there is sometimes controversy around public-private partnerships and to what extent we want to rely on them, maybe we need to rely on them, but also, you know, in the past there certainly has been, been straight public provision. Can you say a little bit about the, the, kinds of, the kinds of challenges that the field grapples with in thinking about public and private partnerships? Yeah, I, I probably, I think there's lots of them probably an, an, across the board in this work, but I think things like, I think what's happening in terms of public housing in this country, it's actually really expensive to maintain public housing. And most, I think the federal government has been slowly sort of leaning out of that work and local jurisdictions cannot afford to do that on their own. 
So what they've come up with is a kind of a public-private split. Can they sell those uh, public housing units to private developers with the caveat that they keep some portion of those developments affordable for some period of time to sort of get a little bit of that, of that happening? The challenge with that, of course, is that a lot of those units end up going out, right? So, you know, have a 100-unit development and half of them are going to stay affordable. That means half of them then go back to the private market. That means 50 units of affordable housing off the market. So that's an area where it's a public-private partnership because without the sort of private sector, right, as developers, we're willing to lean into that, those developments, we probably, we just don't, we haven't built the public will to invest in public housing, right? So, right, we're, we're pushing that onto the private sector. But in return for that, the private sector has said, yes, we will help you with this, but we're going to make a profit off of it. And that requires us to push some of these to the outside of the market. Yeah. There's a lot of controversy about that. I mean, just the nature of that is really challenging. Um, and so we get criticized all around. Everybody gets criticized for some version of that. But it's complicated when you think about the politics of that, the optics of that, and then the, the, the outcomes around that. So that's great. So I'm, I'm tempted to, to keep digging into the finer points of some of the policy because I'm fascinated here, but I'm going to resist that and just move, not that we're going to move away from policy, but move to talking about community, which is, um, was a key part of the work that we, we did together. Um, and specifically, we'll turn to community development in a second, but I'm just, I'm wondering community figures very prominently in, in the way that you do your work and the way that you think about things. Can you say a little bit about how you think about community and, and what it is and why it's important? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that makes, and I'll put it in the context of housing, I think the thing that makes the housing work really particularly, makes it a little bit controversial and it also makes it a little bit difficult is that people don't think of their home outside of the context of the communities in which they live. So, you know, when people will raise their hand, when you say, do, we, do you think we need affordable housing? They'll say, yes, we need affordable housing. But when you say you're going to put it in their neighborhood or in their community, Oh boy, <laughs> that's when the trouble gets started. So then the same people who said on the one hand that they agree with the principles and ideals of affordable housing are the same folks who come and shout you down in the community meeting where they're supposed to approve of the new zoning regulation to be able to do that. Yeah. So housing is the thing that it, it fits inside a bigger container of the folks who live next to you. Um, and so it, it's, it's challenging, right? Because what, you know when people are making the making their own calculation about whether or not they support it in their neighborhood. They think about things like their own property values and equity in their own home and how it will show up in terms of their, right, their ability to resell their homes and what it will look like in terms of crime and what it will look like in terms of traffic congestion and what all of that gets woven into this really simple conversation around affordable housing. Yeah. So from my vantage point, those things are integrated and linked. And so you can't think about affordable housing even outside of the context of community. Having said that, <laughs> community can also be a very good thing. It's the, you know, so when people think about where they live, they, you know, when, you, when you're looking for a home somewhere, you think about like, where will my kids be able to play in? Where will they go to school and who will be their peers? And so, you know, what makes for a great place to live is all those things that makes people feel like they have, they're able to dream bigger. They're able to connect their family members to opportunity. They feel like they're going to be able to get the things they need in life. Um, and those are bigger concepts um, than just four walls, right, and a roof, right? It's about the way we live our lives and who has connection to our, our lives in that way. So before, I, I want to transition in just a second to, to talking about framing and, and specifically what, how you actually take some of the framing and, and actually put it into practice, kind of move, move out of the lab and um, help think about how to use it. Before we get there, I just want to come, come back to a, a speech that you gave earlier this year, coming back to this issue of kind of communities, um, you talked about adapting to change. 
and, and ask, how do we help communities adapt to the futures that are coming? I wonder if you can say a little bit about that and, and what, what your answer to that is. Yeah, and, and for me and the work that I do, for the work that I take on, this issue of adaptive leadership is I think the moment that we're in, not just on housing, but a number of big thorny problems or challenges or opportunities, right, that are that are challenging our, our country. We have to adapt to the future of the world that's coming. The economy that's coming is going to change everything about what we know and love and every part of our community, what we know is coming, the economy that's coming, the technology that's coming is going to change and upend everything that we thought, right, by way that we might, you know, define community. So it's going to challenge us, I think, to sort of engage folks differently in what the solutions are and what are the ways in which we distribute and allocate resources and how we make sense of the world in front of us. Um, and I think that adaptive challenge is what I think not just in housing, but I think our leadership is really just, you know, we take one major step forward on the, on the sort of adaptive um, leadership um, challenge, because that is really, the, you know, that's what's happening in Nashville and every other part of the country. The, you know, you, you, right, the city is changing, where you live is changing, the economy is changing, right? The jobs that used to be, you know, that you could get that would allow you to afford this kind of lifestyle just don't exist anymore. And if you don't, if you don't, get in front of that sense of change. People can go in either one or two directions. And John, John Powell um, taught, at Haas Institute talks about this a lot. You got two responses. People either start breaking apart and they start blaming each other for the for the fate for their own fates and what's not happening, or they adapt and they start bridging. And that's the thing I think that framing can help to do. How do you bridge folks into a bigger conversation that talks about the value system that we hold and why these values are important to who we are as a people. If you don't do that bridging work, you see the breaking work. People start to build walls. They start to build walls around things. We'll just have that as a euphemism for the conversation. They start um, building walls around the privileges that they have, right, and not seeing the value of, of letting other people into those privileged spaces. They start um, coming into themselves. They start holding on to what they have, and they start trying to keep other folks from having access to those things. That doesn't bode well for a society in which we have to share space and air and all that kind of stuff. So, so the adaptive challenge is real. And a lot of the work that I do is about helping leaders to sort of get the rest of the folks around them into that space. That's great. And that's a, that's a great pivot to framing. Um, and so you have a unique experience having been on this side of things, actually having done the research, um, have obviously this incredibly deep understanding of framing, but you've also worked in the field and are now working with people in the field uh, outside of outside of outside of the lab, um, outside of the place where we're kind of doing the initial research. And so uh, I'd be curious to get your reflections on as you, we've talked earlier in this podcast a bit about some of the findings that came out of the research. As you are now going out and, and helping advocates in the field figure out how to use some of that, what are kind of the key recommendations that you're making or the key strategies that you are suggesting? What are the things that you're telling them um, to help them be more effective framers? Yeah, so I would say probably, if I could step back even for a second, I think one of the earliest things that came out of this work that I think has really opened up the field in a way that is really productive for talking about framing is really the sort of early Map the Gaps report, the sort of really early kind of report that talked about the, the, the dissonance between how we as advocates talk about this work and how the public understands it. That work, I think, Framework does so well and was able to get at least the field to understand. So it was, it was kind of a, and I, and I love that, the, the work that you all do in that space, because it, it has this sort of sobering effect 
of saying, you think you're saying one thing and you think that's what's being received and it's not. <laughs> and so just seeing that and hearing people talk about that has been sobering for a lot of our folks who really thought they were making a stronger connection. They thought that we were talking very loudly and we're getting at the community meeting. Yeah, but you're talking loudly and you're going to community meeting, but when people are at home at their kitchen tables, that's not the takeaway that they're bringing to those tables. And I think, you know, the huge finding that I think has really changed and I think revolutionized the way that at least people understand what's, what's broken about the way that we talk about it is talking about this as the, and I said this earlier part of our, our podcast, talking about the housing market mm. and housing being seen as a commodity, right? The fact that when most people think about housing, they think HDTV and, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, like, you know, all these, you know, the kind of, you know, you know, all this other stuff about how housing itself is a way that you gain wealth. It's a way that it's an investment. It's a way that people gain money. It's not kind of a social issue. And so when we say affordable housing in front of that, we think that that means one thing for folks and it really doesn't. And having people be able to see that and hear that from the, from the interviews that you all did and some of that has really been helpful for the field to have that, that sobering moment. Mm -hmm. You know, having said that, I think, you know, the work around, the, the thing that I sort of use most, there's a couple of things. One, that, that was one sobering moment. The other sobering moment was just testing out the values, right? You know, values can bring people around the table on some of these issues. And I think the ability to test some of the tried and true, <laughs> yep. some of the tried and true messages of our field and to say, nope, you know, we know that what we're trying to do is to connect people to opportunity. But when you try and have that be the lead in a conversation about affordable housing, it backfires. And here's why. I think it's really helpful to folks just to hear that. But the flip side of that, and here are two other values that actually work to better effect, right? This notion of interdependence, how we are dependent on each other. It's not them and us, that we actually are related. There's the, there's the common thing here. And then, you know, talking about fairness across places that when you, when you start a conversation with those values, you can actually get people to at least open up to the, to the, to the bigger solutions, at least hear you out on the bigger solution you got. And it doesn't mean that they accept it and sort of move on, but at least, you know, changing the way that we open up the conversation at least gives us the opening, right, to not have that conversation even backfire, but to at least open up this, the opportunity for a bigger conversation. What do you think the framing research enables advocates to do that they perhaps couldn't do or at least can do as successfully before? I think a couple of things. I think one is to is to name the it's name names. Name the thing that is name the reason why it's backfiring. I think, you know, before I think even for those folks who they may not have even needed that sobering moment, they knew that they weren't connecting the way they should. They couldn't name what was what was out of whack, what was not what's not happening. And I think now they can name it. The way we're framing and messaging this issue doesn't work. We talked about, you know, a series of things, you know, the sort of separate phase. They can name kind of individual. They can, they can now name the things in our current conversation that are just not going well. And they can also change course. So they, at least when they look at something, they go, oh, that's not, <laughs> that's not going well. And they can, and they can at least begin to understand what are some of the things that, that might actually drive a bigger conversation. Um, and I think that is that sort of first level of sort of corrective, having that corrective lens on our work. And being able to be both self-critical, but also being able to implement a different course of action that could result in a brand new story. That the way that we kind of are telling what we do, kind of opens up a different way for us to start that conversation. So, so for advocates who are perhaps new to framing, um, for whom this is an old hat, uh, 
what advice would you give them about both why they should pay attention to framing, but also how they can actually go from these kinds of big recommendations around values, for instance, and, and take them and use them in their day-to-day -day work? Yeah, I think for folks, so, so good news is, I think, at least in terms of the framing and messaging, is I feel like our field sort of more than ever before sort of really gets that we are not doing a great job on that. I think both the work that you all have done, I think enough folks in our in our sector have said, okay, we have got a real challenge. Not, not, especially now that we're trying to walk these very complicated solutions out to the general public, you get those perplexed looks on your face, you go, okay, I did not connect that very well. <laughs> or you get the folks who are now pushing back, right, on a lot of the sort of affordable housing policy going, that's not connecting very well. So I think, I think that's a part of it. But I think that the bigger issue from my vantage point around why we sort of embrace this notion of framing, from, just from what my seat, is that we really, you know, for lots of the issues, we really only get like these periods where there's an open policy window, where we really have a chance to drive a strong agenda around solutions locally around this issue. You don't get that many opportunities to do that. You know, and I will say that we had that opportunity in 2009 uh, when the world market, when the, you know, the market crashed and it was all around the housing market and we lost the narrative. We lost it. It became all about big banks and too big to fail and, you know, regulation and, you know, people who bought too much house. And those things are important as well. They are. We needed to address some of the holes in the regulatory system around banking and, and affordable and housing overall. But we didn't have an, a, a way to talk powerfully about why housing was so central, why housing is important for all of us, why it is the thing that is foundational to our communities. We didn't have the narrative until we lost the moment. Yeah. So I feel like framing, this is our, <laughs> this is the second time around, being lucky or bad, like I don't know what you want to say, but <laughs> we have this moment where every major housing market in the country is in crisis, literally, in terms of affordable housing. And so our response should not be to, to, to raise up the spec of crisis, but certainly to take back the narrative about why housing is central. And framing allows you to be able to connect that for folks, to connect the dots back to this is not just about banks. This is about the future of, of, of our communities and our ability to connect to one another and our ability to ensure that people have what they need to live a productive life. That is so central at this moment is calling forward, I think, the interest in framing and messaging around these issues. Tiffany, you mentioned earlier that these changes are happening all around the country, where communities are expanding, new people are moving in, and longstanding residents are trying to avoid being displaced. As a result, tensions can run high. Do you have any advice or tips to help people see their neighbors and their community as a collective good? Whether we're talking about people who are moving into a neighborhood or longstanding residents who see their neighborhood changing, what can we do to build bridges to create more inclusive communities? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I, I was um, I was I was giving a talk at, uh, at the Habitat for Humanity at their international conference for their um, for, for their affiliates all across the world. They bring them all together once a year and have a big conference. Um, and 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 one of the things I said to them was, you know, you all are more than housers. You certainly do housing, and housing is great. But housing really isn't the core thing that you all do. What you all do better than anybody else, not only in the housing space, but I think across a number of issues, is you all are able to bring together folks who normally would never be in the same space, would never have a conversation together, and to bring them together to do something really positive on behalf of their communities. And what I'll say about that, what I said to them and I, you know, at the conference was you all are building the sort of load-bearing walls of civil discourse. Like if you, you are doing the work to 
bring folks together in a way that we just have very few opportunities these days to do, right? So if you think about what just happened with the Ellen situation where she was sitting next to George Bush at a social event, and she just got reamed on social media. And she said, listen, I, I don't have to agree with somebody to be sitting next to them and just be kind. Like, you know, in a world in which, you know, even just your physical proximity to somebody who may have a different political viewpoint is, is viewed as, you know, an incredible offense. Like we are in deep trouble. That we weren't even talking about. They weren't even talking about issues. It was a, it was a you know sports game. But I just feel like organizations like Habitat that have the capacity to bring people together for the do something you know for on the on behalf of their communities in some way, shape, or form are just really important. I think Habitat like that, folks like the YWCA. I mean, they're like the League of Women Voters who bring people together who just occupy very different places in the community. It's just awesome. So to the extent that people move in neighborhoods, they invest their time in those kind of organizations. Um, they encourage other folks, especially when you disagree with somebody, uh, the best thing to do is not try to argue somebody out of something. Invite them to like work with you on Habitat House, right? Invite them to come in and do you know, um, after school boys and girls stuff. But what happens is you start to interact in that way, in a way that's about solving an issue for the community. And you find that you actually have more in common than you do, right? Then you, then you don't. Um, so, so I hope that answers your question, but that's always my response. Like, what are the, who are, let me look around. Who are the organizations that are bringing folks together to do great things for this community? How can I be involved? And how can I invite others who actually may not even agree with my political um, uh, ideas? That's fantastic. I think that's a great place um, to, to finish up here. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. This has just been a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate it. Um, where can people go to follow you and learn more about your work? Sure. I'm on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Dr. Tiff, Dr. Tiffany Manuel. Um, or you can go to my organization website, thecasemade.com, and I would love to talk to folks about what's happening in the housing space these days. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Thanks so much, Drew. These reframing strategies give us an opportunity to not only rethink how we communicate about housing and community development, but also how we exist in community with one another. To learn more about this work, visit our website at frameworksinstitute.org. Thanks for listening. Frames of Mind is produced by April Callen and recorded, edited, and co-produced by Cameron Lopez. Thank you to our guests, fellow staff, and of course our partners over the last 20 years who've made this work possible. Frame on.